This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, once again, uh, this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates uh, Save the Whales, with Rob and Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Hello. And actually, we're doing it on a Tuesday for once. And we are doing it on a Tuesday, after after making much play of the fact that uh, we were doing our episodes uh, every Tuesday. Like Buffy. Like Buffy. Uh, We then... um, Basically, uh, missed the week and then had to go to a Thursday because of Michael's uh, long voyage, long journey across Australia with his ailing uncle. Yes. Well, actually, he, he wasn't ailing by the time that I got there. He just had a hip that had popped out and had to be popped back in. Oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm sure in the in the heartwarming um, film script that no doubt uh, you could write about this. You might have to wait till after your uncle actually dies so that you know you could cheerfully make up lots of lots of stuff about him. But um, yes, I, I thought that was a very very heartwarming. Thing. But we are we are back to Tuesday. And I think uh, we might get back to a couple of our recurrent uh, recurrent little little themes or little little mini episodes. Um, the first one of which is our errors, omissions, and attributions. Uh-huh. And um, look, I, I think I might have to go through some past episodes and and, uh, and have a bit more of a look for some more errors because. Um, Maybe uh, maybe I'm, I'm not checky enough for errors, or, may, or maybe we're getting better. Who knows? But uh, we don't really have any. Uh, any, any well, errors. I've got one. I mentioned last week that I went across the Nullarbor Plain. Yes, on my, my journey with my uncle, and uh, I just thought I'd point out this week that that's not an Aboriginal word. Some people think that's a uh, Aboriginal word. Oh no, I'm, I'm, I knew I knew it's not an Aboriginal. Word. It means null, as in zero, and abor meaning tree. So yeah. it's a no tree plain, and it's. It, I have to say, it is. Aptly named. <laughs> it's, if, it's, if you so, were a dog that was desperate for a pee, you'd have a lot of trouble. So it's not like Greenland, you know, the... Uh, the, the... Spin and marketing? No, they, <laughs> they decided to be fairly blunt and direct with this. I once went uh, many years ago on the train across the Nullarbor Plain. Yes. Um, I went coach class. There are, there are three classes on the train, Rob. There's first class. Yes. There's economy class and there's coach class. There you go. Well, I think you might actually say that there was those three classes because um, do you know if the train still runs? I think you can still get the train. Maybe it's improved then, but I went coach class. I went with my uh, then girlfriend, now wife. She was going over to work on a sheep station there. Long story. And uh, we went coach class. It was about 79 bucks. You got a seat. Yes. You didn't what, get... Was it a wooden seat? A, it, there was padding on the seat, I'll give you that. We were in car 19, and the reason why I remember I was in car 19 is every night on this journey, which was three days and three nights, the the, the train announcement would come out saying, tonight for dinner we're having duck l'orange, you know, yep. all these other exciting things on the menu. And every single time the announcement was made, it ended with the words, except car 19. And we were in car 19. Wonderful. We got nothing. You got a seat, you didn't get blankets or pillows, 
you could go to the cafeteria car, but you weren't actually allowed to eat in it if you were from car 19. Oh, you had to you, you had to take your food and then go away, because otherwise you might contaminate the first and second class. Plane. Obviously. But when we went across the Nullarbor Plain, it was very, very aptly named. And, and after uh, a whole day of just seeing nothing, including uh, a point where there is the straightest set of railway track in in the world... Now, I'm going to say here it was 700 kilometres so that I can do an attribution <laughs> and correction next week. And the uh, amusing part of that was the driver of the train has to press a button every 70 seconds or the emergency brake will come on. To, 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 so so that, 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 that they know he hasn't fallen asleep or died. Or something like that, yes. A dead man's brake comes on if he doesn't press a button every 70 seconds. So what that essentially meant on this journey was oh, every couple of hours the train would just come thumping to a halt <laughs> as obviously the driver had gone off for a pee and raced back to press the button and, oh, and missed his time. That only gives you 70 seconds to go for a pee, which, which yeah, that's... Yeah. Also, because there's only one track. Australia's a big country. It's expensive to put two tracks across. Mm. Um, And goods trains have priority. Every once in a while, you'd hop into a siding and sit there for several hours waiting for the train to come back the other way. So it was that was an absolutely epic journey. I have to say it was far more pleasant doing it in a car with my uncle and uh, listening to a talking book amazingly we had even 3g internet access at different points and on the serious points i mean can i just say you rang me another number of times during that journey and and you were breaking up in a very fractal way uh, on a number of occasions yes so so anyway there we go nullabor it means no trees no trees well, I, I have an addition uh, to make from last week, cause I, and I think this is probably going to be a, a fairly constant theme um, throughout the, the rest of our journey. Um, because last last week, um, uh, we had come across in our secondary sources, and also very enthusiastically in Mr Whittle's um, A Memorable Voyage... Which I'm now holding up yes, to the yes, microphone. Yes, which, which Michael is now holding up to the microphone in our traditional holding up of, the, of these sources. Um, Tricing, which was the, the charming... Um, naval habit, and it wasn't a Confederate habit, it was a US Navy habit, of stringing you up from a beam by your thumbs um, and then pulling on uh, the string, or probably rope, um, so that your toes were almost off the ground. And uh, this punishment could be made worse by pulling it, say, your toe, just the, the tip of your big toe was on the ground, or it could be made a little bit more humane by you had half of your foot on the and, ground. And this was done as a humane alternative to flogging, I believe. Well, it wasn't really a humane alternative to flogging. Um, one, of the, one of the problems was, and I'm getting my information here from the um, Naval History blog... Um, www.navalhistory.org and this was a uh, post on the 28th of uh, September 2010 which was the 150th uh, anniversary of the um, abolition of flogging in the US Navy. But but sadly not the abolition of tricing. It, it was Yes, it was the abolition of flogging but not the abolition of corporal punishment because... Um, one of the problems that they did have was that um, um, flogging had been the basis of naval discipline for for, um, for hundreds of years, and of course, given that the U.S.S. Navy had originally, at you know, some point, being part of the British Navy, which has as its three cornerstones, 
rum, sodomy, and the lash. Yes, yeah, fair enough. Um, um, yeah, thank, thank you for that, Michael. Um, if flogging, flogging had been um, the basis for for naval discipline for uh, a very long time. You had the the cat of nine tails, which would uh, would come out of the bag. Um, but you, you tend to think. Um, about flogging these days in, in terms of, you know, a hundred lashes or something that would, 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 would leave the, uh, the person absolutely, um, uh, yeah, you'd, you'd collapse and faint and, and, you know, you'd be, you'd be Your sick back would be ribbons. Your, your back would be ribbons. And, um, uh, because we're Australian, um, a lot of the, um, uh, the law in Australia around flogging is obviously to do with, um, the flogging of convicts and convicts. Which they tend to do with fairly enthusiastic, uh, fervour, yes. didn't they? Yeah, yeah, convicts often used to get 100 or 200 or even 300 lashes. And basically, I once read a description of a convict who had had 300 lashes and his kidneys had been turned to jelly. So, uh, that was fairly horrible. But, um, in terms of, of the Navy, um, a, a much more likely punishment would be 20 lashes. Uh, the man would have would be carefully tended medically by having salt water poured over his back, which, despite the fact it would be horrendously painful, would actually, in fact... Yeah, it would do you some good. Would, would, would do you some good. But then he could be back at work uh, five minutes later. Um, probably not in a terribly uh, happy state. But um, Well, in, in order to show your disregard for such punishment, you would... Put your shirt back on. Yes. And yes, get back to work. Yes, to, to, to show how tough you are. And were. try not to whimper. And try not to whimper. Um, I think I'd whimper, yeah. right? I'm just letting you know. <laughs> yes, I, I don't think the lot of a, uh, of a, of a seaman uh, in uh, any of the navies of the world before the 20th century was um, in any way uh, an enviable one. Uh, but the, the thing about the, the abolition of, um, of flogging in 1850, and, and guess who in Congress were the people who didn't want to abolish flogging? Oh, it was one party and not the other. One, well, one geographical region and not. Oh, the other. okay. I'm kind of guessing it was those people in the south who kind of thought he flogging thought, was something that needed to stay on the books. Yeah, it was the southerners definitely who thought that. Yeah, um, if it was good enough for slaves, it was good enough for sailors. Yes, well, there you go. So yes, the the southerners were quite enthusiastic, but but the the actual problem was that. Um, They'd, they'd use flogging as basically, you know, um, you had clapping in irons, but the thing about clapping in irons was that that meant that the, the sailor couldn't work. So uh, it was very unpopular with the officers for that reason. And that meant, of course, obviously, that the people who um, had not done wrong um, had to had to work more. So it, it punished the innocent while giving the, uh, the guilty a bit of time to reflect upon their life uh, while they were clapped in irons. Um, so... But the the problem was that when when and, flogging... and I guess you couldn't actually have them work in irons because no, no. slow them down and probably wouldn't be really good up there on the yard. <laughs> no, arms, would yeah, it? it would tend to. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I doubt you could. I don't think even the the navy would make you do that. Um, and the problem was that when they abolished uh, flogging, they on uh, September the twenty eighth, uh, eighteen fifty. They didn't institute any new um, method of discipline, and um, but except for the fact that that while they had um, abolished flogging, they had not abolished um, corporal punishment. Now, uh, one of the interesting things um, that uh, Commodore Matthew C. Perry um, sailed on his famous mission to Japan to to open up Japan um, at the force of of of, of the gun uh, to um, to foreign commerce. 
And he actually set off. It was a two-year mission. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, because when you think about it, you know, um, it's just across the Pacific. You, know, you, you wouldn't have thought, really, two years was... Uh, but I suppose he, he probably had to go around to all of the ports of, of Japan and give them a demonstration of gunboat diplomacy and, uh, and then move on. But uh, Perry headed off with no new um, directions as to um, what discipline... Um, sailors should be put and under. And presumably he left the cat behind. Well, he left the cat behind. And um, Perry sounds like he was a good naval commander. Good. You probably didn't send the worst naval commander off on a two-year voyage to uh, to a foreign country. So um, Perry uh, decided to, to solve the problems by he had extra rations of rum, which I, I think would uh, would always be a good morale, morale booster. Um, he had amateur theatricals. <laughs> which apparently went, went down very, very well. And he had a system of intership visits. So you would you would go off with your mates and visit another ship and presumably be rummed and dined by them and then you would have them uh, back the next week. And uh, then, of course, they got to visit Japan and no doubt had a, a very interesting time there. So Perry, I think, being a, um, a good commander, uh, had, had high morale on his two-year voyage and, um, well, American... Naval and army personnel have been in Japan for a large part of the intervening uh, period. Yes, that sounds like a real pleasure cruise. <laughs> it wasn't quite the same pleasure cruise on the Shenandoah no, at the time, though, no, was it? It was not. But um, but the thing was, so they were left with corporal punishment. Now, the other thing about flogging, obviously, is that once a man had been flogged, it was um, obvious for the rest of his life whenever he took his shirt off. So triting was something that once presumably the uh, bruises on your wrists and thumb had worn <laughs> off. Yowch. Would, would, yowch would no longer be visible. Uh, they also did gagging and gagging and pouring great amounts of seawater over you. Now, again, this, this sounds to me extraordinarily like waterboarding. But, it um, does a bit, doesn't it? It, it, it does a bit. So um, now the habit of tricing was not actually made illegal in the US till 1890. So for another 40 years after the abolition of flogging, corporal punishment remained something uh, on the books, and it was something that was um, very enthusiastically taken up by by our Mr Whittle. Yes, yes. Uh, We're at a point in the... uh, We should move on to the next segment, Rob, which is where are we now? Yes. And where we are is we're in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. Yes. We're not even at Tristan da Cunha, are we? No, we're, we're, we're about 300 miles away, um, heading, heading that way. And we'll talk a bit more about Tristan da Cunha next week. But they're pretty much in the middle of the South Atlantic. And last week I talked about how uh, Whittle was, was bemoaning the fact that I wish we could catch another Yankee. Yes, well, as, as you can tell by the fact that we've had 10 minutes on tricing to date, they have not yet caught another no, Yankee. No, <laughs> no, they have not caught another Yankee. They have, during the intervening time, encountered uh, a number of vessels, and each and every time they've proven to be British vessels. There was one which they contemptuously thought was Yankee-built, but appeared to have uh, been registered by the Norwegians. Just fancy. Just fancy. So that was. Oh, you don't want to take on the Norwegians. No, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. nobody wants to do that. So, so that didn't work. And so, despite they've spotted these vessels, none of them 
were ones that they could possibly take. So they had a bit of high excitement a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And since then, it's just been uh, sailing, spotting ships, discovering they're not ones that they can do anything with, and moving on. In between, we had uh, Whittle recovering from uh, swallowing his piece of glass. glass, And um, it appears that may have finally... uh, Moved its way through the system, shall we say? Yes. Uh, 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 has he recovered from giving up smoking yet? No, but I, I'd say that he's still in an extremely tetchy mood because <laughs> most of the journal entries over the last week pretty much point out the various interesting and creative ways he's come up with punishing the crew. For yes, various yes, and he came up with a, a, um, a very nice homoerotic punishment, didn't he? Yes, he did. Well, so he, I think says more about Mr Whittle than it does about the sailors involved. Yeah, that, that's pretty much at the same time that he's talking about how much he desperately misses his sweetheart at home. Okay, uh, read yes. into that what you will. Yes, yes. Yes. So, so, no, no, so what, what, what was that punishment? Um... That one was, there were two men, Mr. Hall, yes. the second mate, who I'll talk about a bit more later, and uh, and Mr. Raymond, who was described here as a top, but we'll go into more detail <laughs> about that later too. And they got to quarrelling um, about a discussion as to the character of one of the ships that they were chasing after. Fair enough. And that led to blows. So uh, oh, it was there. It was Whittle's painful duty to punish them, which he did in a novel way, and he put them in single irons, each one embracing the other around an iron stanchion, and then taking their hands to a beam. There you go. So the first impulse on their part was to laugh at the joke, but oh, they... Did he ask them for their safety words first? <laughs> but they soon concluded it was all on one side and sent word to be please let down. And he did so after they'd been up there long enough to make an example of them. Because, as Whittle said, he writes this later, On a cruise of this kind, I consider discipline not only desirable, but absolutely necessary to our very existence. Well, I I think, really, Whittle should have taken a leaf out of Perry's book and um, had some amateur, amateur theatricals instead. Yes. Yeah, they could have, you know, No, no, it was... Got it was, dressed up in drag and, uh, you it, know. it was Whittle's very firm belief that when men once see you are disciplined and firm, they'll be better, happier and better contented. Yeah, yeah that's fine, but given he seems to have had to repeat this discipline dose any number of times um, it within does, the first two or it, three weeks... It does make you wonder, doesn't it? Um... Because Mr. Hall, who we'd just triced up uh, in the uh, the interesting and novel way, two days later, um, was being found guilty of a piece of scandalous conduct. And I'm afraid nothing more is said as to what that was. Uh, the mind kind of... Well, maybe he... <laughs> so he is gagged and triced up again higher. And he kept up that way until he uh, said he'd behave himself. And in the end, he had to be disrated. And we're... I'm thinking that, that if you're the second mate, you don't want to be hauled up in front of the executive officer two times in one week, especially not for scandalous conduct. I think that... Uh, yes. yes. I think you're asking to be um, to be disrated. So so now they have a disgruntled second mate um, back, back in the... Uh, Back in the crew's quarters, and um, yes. I'm afraid it gets even worse. Oh, dear. Um, Mr. Hall then... This is this is a really interesting one. Uh, he says that Hall's been giving more trouble than any man in the ship. This is, uh, this is on the 2nd of December. Oh, yes, well, there you go. That's... And uh, fighting is generally an offence for which both parties should be punished, but here was a peculiar case, because Hall 
had used such language to the other that if I had heard it and the man had not resented it once by knocking him down, I would have punished him very severely. Again, details are not provided as to what Mr. Hall said. There you go. I think... um... I think it's a bit of a shade that Whittle is obviously bowdlerising his uh, his journal, but, um, but yes. There you go. But again, so, so, again, there's no recognition from Whittle that he's punished this man three times in a week with increasingly strong bondage positions, and somehow that has not cured him and uh, led him to uh, become a better person. And then he w- and then Whittle went back to say that he uh, spent my day reading my Bible and reading the letters from my darling Patty and from my dear ones at home. Reading letters from those I love always has a good effect on me. Well, I'm not sure about that. (laughs) It is like reading some good book, in that as much as it makes me think of God and be grateful for his manifold and great mercies. Interesting. Very very nice. Yes, yes. Uh, Now, I think um, uh, another thing that was going on uh, around this time is that um, uh, Lieutenant Commanding Waddell had been really rather diffident and a bit missing in action um, up until... Um... It's, it's interesting. Uh, for the last uh, two weeks, yes. he is not mentioned in Whittle's journal at all. There you go. Which is interesting, given he's the captain. I mean... Uh, given he's his direct superior. He Obviously, uh, he's left the discipline to Whittle, which he has taken <laughs> well, well, on with great enthusiasm. To be fair, um, it was the executive officer's, uh, you know... Responsibility for discipline, but they did have to be quite as enthusiastic about it as, as Whittle was. Um, but uh, again, uh, one of the details from uh, from uh, Sea of Grey um, was that um, Waddell made himself very unpopular in late November uh, by uh, institu- instituting a dress code for the officers, which meant that uh, they had to um, uh, wear their grey Confederate uniforms, and apparently. Um, that the problem was that, that, that of course, the, the traditional U.S. naval uniform had been blue. Had been blue, and, yes. Um, apparently, if if you're at sea, um, it's, there's no 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 coincidence that the blue uniform was um, uh, was preferred because apparently it, it held up very well and didn't didn't show the dirt and presumably held up very well to, to, to salt spray. But the grey uniform, again, I can imagine uh, grey being a um, yeah, rather light colour, presumably got discoloured very quickly. So, indeed, indeed. Um, <clears throat> on the 20th of November, Whittle even writes about this. Yes, okay. He doesn't yeah. mention that the captains told them they have to wear the blue, but... The grey. <clears throat> the grey, but he says that uh, grey will never stand the sea air. I have a suit which I had never had on till I came on board, and now it looks as though I have been wearing it for a year. There you go, and they're only, they're only two, two months into a, uh, to a one-year cruise. So... Um, so yes, so, so Waddell was um, after being diffident and um, you know timorous for the first uh, couple of months of the uh, of the cruise. Waddell was starting to show himself as, a, as, as something of an autocrat, a stickler, a stickler, well. a stickler. Uh, Whittle has been enthusiastically um, punishing every uh, every sailor he can, and uh, they're still in the South Atlantic, and they have not taken uh, very many prizes at all. But <clears throat> here's, uh, here's something that interesting that has happened that leads on to the second part of the title of, uh, ah, of yes. our story, which is that Confederate pirates saved the whales. They get their first sign of the whaling grounds. 
Yes, okay. And what that is, it's, is, is what uh, Whittle calls, they see whale food in the water. There you go. And what whale food is, is it, it appears in kind of blobs and streaks of, of, of colour. And when eventually you come across a huge amount of it, it's a vivid red. There you go. So what they do is they, uh, <coughs> they were very excited. And, and sorry, and the, the modern name for this is? Well, the modern name for this is krill. Okay, so which are, which are microscopic shrimp, if I'm not... Well, they're not quite microscopic, but they are small. They are small, yes, yes, yeah, okay. Yeah, you can hold them up and see them. But uh, back in those days, and don't forget, they do have a number of people who worked on whalers on board the ship, but even so, Whittle does write that they say that the whales eat this stuff, but some say they do not. But in anyhow, it's a good sign of whaling crowns. There you go. There you go. So they've they've come across uh, some krill, some whale food, as they call it. So they think that whalers, where there's whale food, hopefully there's whales. Yep. And where there's whales, there's whalers. Yes, because that I mean, um, yeah, the, the 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 commission of the Shenandoah was certainly to to pick up any any commerce. Um, uh, any any merchant ships along the way that they could, but the domain commission, which was was given to them from the start, it wasn't something that they came up with after they left, but was to track down the Nantucket whalings fleet, basically wherever it might happen to be, and they they did think it would end up being found in the in the Arctic off, off Alaska, which was something spoilers uh, something of a good call, <laughs> but again the the, the you know, whales circumnavigate the earth, so um, and, and whalers are where whales are. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if the whales moved, the uh, the whalers would also move. So he did actually, uh, Whittle did actually get a bucket out. Yes. And uh, put in the water to see what it looked like, and caught some. And he says, "I found the water alive, with little red insects looking in form very much, much like lobster or shrimp." Well, there you go. Now, that, that's a, a remarkable discovery on his part. But I'm sure it was a discovery that had been made, yeah, you know, a long time before before this. So it's something that really, for for, for a command that set out to sink a whaling fleet, you'd think that they might have learned a bit. They, more they could have about figured that one out. Yeah. Still, I have to say that, that that's quite good observation on um, on Lieutenant Whittle's part. So, the, and I think um, microscopic shrimp, uh, or perhaps not quite microscopic, but very small shrimp, is indeed exactly what uh, what krill are, and uh, they are indeed whale food. So, so there you go. But at the moment, no whalers. At the moment, no whalers. Hmm. Well, I think. Um, on that note, I think uh, next week our, uh, our crew of anti-heroes are going to be arriving at Tristan de Cunha, which is, I believe, Michael, the most isolated... It's the most isolated archipelago in the world. Presumably, oh, sorry, of inhabited islands. Of inhabited uh, yes, islands. Yes, I think yes. there, are, there are some um, sub-Antarctic um, islands. But they're inhabited more. by, you know, penguins and seals. Yes, penguins and seals, <coughs> except for, for Rat Island, um, which uh, apparently... which is a, a, It's a, got rats on it? No, no, well, <laughs> uh, Rat Island is a New Zealand uh, sub-Antarctic island, and uh, the New Zealand um, government, presumably the de-ratting department or something like that, had a great campaign and they have de-ratted Rat Island, so Rat Island no longer has any rats. Oh, wow. So I think they, they, now need, to, they need to work out what... Uh, 
So Dal Rattus Norvegicus Island, <laughs> I think they should that that, that change the name. Um, but yes, so next next week we'll be talking about Tristan de Kuna, and um, no doubt I think we'll, we'll go through the last few episodes and, and root out all of our errors because I'm sure we've made a, a lot more than we've uh, we've let on. I'm sure we have. But I'm sure we have, and I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about Mister Whittle's strange disciplinary practices. And is there any correlation between reading his letters from his sweetheart Patty? Um, but until then, um, this has been uh, Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales with Robin Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. I'm Mob. And it's goodbye for now. <laughs>